From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza. Ron Elving on the week in politics, a new speaker at last. And we go to Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood where many people use drugs in full sight of residents and even police. One of the owners of a local restaurant asks, What message are we sending to children? What message are we sending that, okay, you're an addict, it's okay to use drugs, so we're facilitating this for you? And later, Edward Carey's new novel of a young girl who comes to life only in a theater and music to hear between innings of the World Series, The Baseball Project. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, October 28, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israel's stepped-up bombardment of Gaza has led to a communication blackout leading aid organizations to sound the alarm about relief efforts. Avril Benwala is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders. She's pleading for both sides to respect and protect her colleagues. Today, it's impossible for our colleagues to work safely because of widespread attacks on health care, which have impacted hospitals, ambulances, medical personnel, and patients. Israel has increased air attacks and says that it's expanding its ground operation in Gaza with infantry and armored vehicles. An Israeli military leader, uh, an Israeli military spokesman rather, says a Hamas leader was killed overnight as warplanes carried out extensive strikes on Hamas tunnels and other infrastructure. Protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza packed New York City's Grand Central Terminal during the Friday evening rush hour. The rally was organized by a Jewish group. Authorities say more than 200 people were arrested. A leading Republican Jewish organization is hosting eight GOP presidential candidates at its uh, conference being held in Las Vegas today. Here's NPR's Don Gagne. This year's gathering of the Republican Jewish coalition comes amid the Israel-Hamas war. That lends an urgency to the proceedings and will no doubt be the primary focus of candidate speeches. GOP presidential hopefuls generally come to this event looking to shore up support from Jewish voters and attract donors to their campaigns. They always pledge their support for Israel. This year, conference attendees will be looking for unequivocal backing of Israel at a time of crisis. The Republican candidates scheduled to speak including former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and Senator Tim Scott, can be expected to deliver that promise. Don Gagne, NPR News. Former President Trump set to testify on November 6 in the civil fraud case against him in New York City. Lawyers for the state disclosed the schedule in court Friday when the judge ruled that Trump's daughter Ivanka must also take the stand in addition to his two eldest sons. The suspect wanted in the mass shootings in Maine has been found dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Maine Public Radio's Nicole Grisco reports. Law enforcement officials discovered the body of 40-year-old Robert Card after a nearly 48-hour manhunt. Maine Public Safety Commissioner Michael Sawshuck says the body was found in Lisbon, close to the Androscoggin River, where dive teams, helicopters, and other crews had already searched. Uh, we continued to search locations, uh, in some cases multiple times. Authorities describe the discovery as a relief and say that the state can now begin to heal. 18 people were killed and 13 others were injured Wednesday in Maine's deadliest mass shooting. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Grisco in Portland, Maine. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Medway family trapped in Gaza says the bombings there have intensified and they're living in fear. The Palestinian-American family was able to communicate this morning, despite a near blackout of most information from the enclave. Abud Okal sent an audio message describing a dire situation. The most noticeable and scariest of all is the sound of missile whistles that uh, you could hear flying over the house. Alcal says he and his wife, along with their one-year-old son, are living in fear. Between airstrikes, uh, explosions, um, artillery shelling, fighter jets flying at low altitude, uh, and, and drones buzzing all night. The family has been trapped in Gaza for three weeks, but he says they remain hopeful the U.S. can help get them out. A shelter-in-place order is in effect on the campus of Worcester State University. All on- and off-campus university events are also canceled today. A campus alert says there's no immediate threat to campus. Worcester State Police are asking anyone with knowledge or footage of the Wesleyan parking lot to share information. Two 21-year-old men from western Massachusetts have been found dead on a roadside in rural northeastern Vermont. Both died of gunshot wounds to their heads. Jaheem Solomon and Eric White were missing for more than a week before they were found. Vermont State Police are asking anyone with information about the case to contact them. A former attorney has been convicted of bribing Medford's police chief to get approval for his client to sell recreational marijuana. A federal jury in Boston has convicted Sean O'Donovan on two wire fraud-related charges and one bribery-related charge. Court documents say O'Donovan offered a relative of the chief $25,000 to speak with the chief about his client's retail marijuana application. It is 63 degrees in Boston with sunshine today. Highs in the low 80s, lows in the upper 40s tonight. A chance of some rain tomorrow, mainly late in the day, and Sunday's temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. Israel has expanded its military operation in the Gaza Strip. This includes stepping up airstrikes and ground forces now hold territory in the northern part of the area. Little information is available from inside Gaza, where communications are almost entirely cut off. And here's Greg Myries in Tel Aviv. Greg, thanks for being with us. Good to be here, Scott. What do we know about the fighting in Gaza at this moment? Well, we certainly seem to be at a new stage of the conflict. This really is a significant expansion and intensification of this Israeli military operation. But we should stress this does not seem to be the full-scale ground invasion that many are anticipating. These airstrikes overnight appeared to be the heaviest yet. Israel also sent ground forces into the north. They have been making brief in-and-out raids the past couple nights. But today, the military says the troops are still there, so it's the first 
first time this has happened. And details are sparse, but uh, Israel said it did send in armored vehicles, tanks, and armored personnel carriers, as well as artillery. Israelis also say they hit 150 underground targets, these being the tunnels that Hamas has, and they killed a number of Hamas commanders, including one, they say, who was responsible for the drone and paraglider attacks in southern Israel three weeks ago. What does Hamas say? The group released a statement. Uh, they said the Israeli ground incursion was a, quote, failure, and they claim Israel suffered heavy losses in both soldiers and equipment. Now, Hamas said the fighters were able to carry out ambushes on the Israeli ground forces and that Israel needed helicopters to evacuate the dead and wounded. However, the Israeli military says they suffered no casualties overnight. And, Greg, we know the humanitarian conditions in Gaza are dire. What, what's the latest information on that? Yeah, Scott, we have almost no new information from inside Gaza because, as you, as you noted, virtually all communications have been cut off. Cell phones, the Internet are all down. Now, there's a pretty strong suspicion Israel is behind this, but Israel isn't commenting one way or the other. Uh, the World Health Organization says it can't contact its medical teams in Gaza. UN aid organizations say they've had very limited contact via satellite phone. But it's hard to get any real sense uh, of what's going on because of this these these limits. We haven't been able to reach our NPR producer in Gaza or others that we've been in contact with. And this communications blackout does make conditions more dire. For example, if Palestinians are wounded in an airstrike, they can't call an ambulance or a hospital. So this makes rescue efforts very, very difficult. This is obviously a, a changing situation minute by minute. What What are you going to be watching? So we're keeping close watch on Israel's very large ground force, which remains massed just outside the borders of Gaza. And there's still this widespread expectation that Israel will send in more troops uh, into the territory. Of course, we have no idea what that timetable might look like. There's still airstrikes taking place in Gaza today, we can tell from the huge plumes of smoke going up. Um, we should note that the northern part of Gaza, where the Israelis are operating, has these open fields. So Israeli troops can take up positions there and be relatively secure. But if they push deeper into Gaza, as many expect, they'll soon hit Gaza City, the most densely packed part of the territory. And we could see very heavy urban fighting. A uh, number of military analysts we've spoken with say this operation could last months, much larger than any previous Israeli operation in Gaza. And Pierre's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Sure thing, Scott. There is a new name in the U.S. presidential line of succession, House Speaker Mike Johnson. He is 51 and from Shreveport and has supported Donald Trump. But on Fox News this week, he made reference to another Republican president. Ronald Reagan used to teach us I'd rather get 80 percent of what I want than go over the cliff with a flag waving. I still believe in that idea. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. What do you make of now Speaker Johnson? What influence might he have? He may have started by quoting Ronald Reagan, but I think he's going to remind more people of the politics of Donald Trump. Let's just say he's a departure from the usual speaker credentials, not a senior member, not a chairman, not a well-known name. Uh, he was first elected in 2016, same year as Trump. He has been the chair of the Republican Study Conference. That's the largest group of House conservatives. And he's had a lower rung on the leadership ladder, the House Republicans, only number five in their hierarchy. 
But that's been important because his task was largely to communicate the leadership team's viewpoint to the party's hardcore on the right, to reach out on behalf of Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership team. And as events have unfolded, that may have been a virtue for his bid for Speaker. And why is the lower profile a virtue? It gave him an opening into both camps in the standoff over the past three weeks. He could talk to the rebels who ousted McCarthy, but also present himself as a more conventional Republican to the rest of the party where most of the votes were. Now, let's be clear. He is not a moderate in his views. He is well known as an outspoken conservative and evangelical Christian. He has said he looks to the Bible to guide his stands on all issues. And, you know, his first fundraising appeal that went out this week quoted the Bible and cited God three times just in the opening paragraphs. So we should also add he is a staunch opponent of abortion and same-sex marriage. He blames gun violence in schools on the lack of religion in the schools. And in fact, he's been compared to Jim Jordan, the hard-charging conservative whose own bid for speaker failed a week ago. Uh, It's been said Johnson is Jordan with a suit jacket and a smile. Jordan, of course, being known for wearing (laughs) neither. But while he may be more personable, Johnson is still okay with the Trump faction in the House. In fact, back in 2020, he organized support for a lawsuit attempting to overturn the election results and keep Trump in the White House. And even now, he refuses to acknowledge President Biden was legitimately elected. Ron, will Mr. Johnson's election make President Joe Biden's request for more aid for Israel and Ukraine more difficult to pass? And what about funding the government? Aid to Israel is not at risk here. Scott Johnson will see to that money, and he will make sure it passes on the floor. But aid to Ukraine is very much in question. That's got to be very chilling to Ukrainians preparing for winter and for Europeans counting on the U.S. in the future. And on the big annual spending bills, you mentioned Johnson is not one of those who relish the idea of a shutdown. But some of those members who do seem to were crucial to Johnson getting this job. And, Ron, we we have to ask you, because he continues to lead all polls in his party, how do you read this speaker's election as a sign of the influence of Donald Trump? You know, when Jordan's speaker bid went down in flames a week ago, some people thought it meant Trump's influence was on the wane. Turns out that was more about Jordan than Trump. This week, Trump weighed in to trash the candidate who had been chosen by an open process among the House Republicans themselves. That was Minnesotan Tom Emmer. Uh, Trump called him a Republican in name only and a globalist. And those are fighting words in today's GOP. So it would seem Trump's stock in the House is as high as ever. And it is mirrored by those polls that you mentioned among Republican primary voters. At the same time, Trump's legal condition continues to deteriorate. Uh, We have seen several of his former lawyers testify against him or agree to testify against him in the future. And even his former chief of staff is reported to be cooperating with prosecutors. And Trump himself incurred yet another larger fine this week for his defiance of a partial gag order. He's got to be worried that the image of him in the dock is taking the place of the image of him at his triumphant rallies. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. The city of Chicago opens a new shelter for migrants every six days. About 1,500 people can be housed in the Inn of Chicago, which was the Hotel St. Clair, when my father and I lived there. Faded old place with small, dim rooms for people who worked in night spots nearby. My father died there one morning, room 12M, in 1968. My wife and I dropped by this week. 
The people living here now have walked through fields, jungles, and swamps to reach the U.S. border from Venezuela, where they say life has become treacherous under a tyrannical regime. Then they were brought by bus to Chicago. We weren't permitted inside, but saw many families outside the shelter sipping drinks from a donut shop. A little girl stood up on blue and pink wheeled roller skates. A little boy bounced a ball against the hotel's stone wall and ran after it into the street. I used to do that too. Many people don't want to use their names. They're in the middle of the asylum process, but my wife and I spoke with a small group. Wore t-shirts donated by charities with logos from local bars, high schools, and also ran sports teams. There have been reports of thefts and violence in the shelter, but residents on the street told us. No, aquí es más seguridad, más tranquilo. Nos respetan mucho. Tenemos muchos derechos, que es muy importante. Because life here is much quieter, much calmer, much safer, and that people respect them here, and that there are rules and laws. Families said they want to work and for their children to go to school and to make new lives in the city, but it takes time for their applications to stay to be processed. Some local groups and elected officials complained that opening shelters has increased street crime in their neighborhoods and deters residents and tourists. Police statistics say thefts, robberies, and assaults have increased, but not just in neighborhoods with shelters. But to be in front of my childhood place reminded me how Chicago and other great cities have been built and energized by people who wanted to work and make better lives for their children. They came over fields, borders, and oceans to be here. I asked people who live in the old St. Clair if they knew who lives in room 12M now. She's on the 12th floor. She's in number 22 on the 12th floor. I feel like we're related. It's <laughs> familia. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about half an hour on Weekend Edition Saturday, band members of the Baseball Project discuss their latest baseball-themed album, Grand Salami Time. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 80s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. Circle Furniture. With their upholstery event through October, Hundreds of sofa, sectional, and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers. CircleFurniture.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The manhunt in Maine is over. Authorities say the man wanted in Wednesday's fatal shooting of 18 people and the wounding of 13 others was found dead last night of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Authorities in New York City say police detained some 200 of the protesters who packed into Grand Central Terminal during Friday evening's rush hour. They were demanding a ceasefire as Israel steps up its bombardment to the Gaza 
Gaza Strip and said it's expanding its ground operation against Hamas militants. In Game 2 of Major League Baseball's World Series is tonight. The Texas Rangers took Game 1 last night with a come-from-behind 6-5 extra innings victory over the Arizona Diamondbacks. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Babies continue to be born in Gaza amid destruction and death. More than 2 million Palestinians live in Gaza, and the United Nations estimates about 150 births there each day. Here's NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin. Women in Gaza are giving birth in dramatic crisis conditions. NPR recently spoke to Dr. Mohamed Kandil at the Nasser Hospital in southern Gaza. Last week, after two pregnant women were hit in an airstrike, he delivered their babies by emergency C-section with no power, using only the light of mobile phones. He says the hospital conditions are dire. We have no water. I don't have water to wash my hands. And this is a reality. From East Jerusalem, Dominic Allen is anxiously following the crisis in Gaza as a representative for the UN Population Fund, which focuses on reproductive health. Our big concern is the 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza right now. They estimate 5,500 of those women will give birth in the next month. Many of them are on the move, fleeing from their homes and trying to find safety. Every time you're moving, you're dodging bombs and the airstrikes with that pressure and stress of not only trying to find safety in that moment, but to think ahead to where am I going to be able to give birth in a safe environment? What's the world that I'm bringing my unborn child into? Allen's UN agency is supporting a helpline for women and youth, but Amal Awadala, the executive director of the Palestinian Family Planning and Protection Association, says it's unclear how many people can reach those resources given the lack of electricity and internet. She says hospitals are telling pregnant women they can't receive care unless they're fully dilated and ready to deliver. With the overcrowded hospitals, women and their newborns are dismissed only a few hours after delivery. Once babies have been born, the challenges continue. One of Alan's colleagues is a reproductive health specialist on the ground in Gaza. She is receiving phone calls from pregnant or new mothers, and they're asking some of the most basic questions around my child's been born. I don't have access to clothes. What do I wrap my baby in to keep their child warm? Alan says a major concern is clean water. Everyone needs water to drink. It's essential for healthy pregnancies. And mothers who breastfeed need to drink extra water to be able to produce milk for their babies. A woman, we spoke, we have babies at eight, seven or eight months old, I think. And she's described how she's no longer able to breastfeed because of the challenges of the situation right now. Allen echoes the UN Secretary General's call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News, Washington. 
Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, a novel solution to the teacher shortage. Grow your own programs. Some school districts are recruiting people from their communities, helping them earn degrees or complete teaching credentials. You can tune in tomorrow morning on your radio, remember them, or by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. In the middle of a morning in Philadelphia, along Kensington Avenue, Below the elevated train platform, there's a woman in a flowered dress down on the sidewalk, quivering and shivering. Why not? She feels her body's just like twitching. They get hurt. Someone named Sam, who knows the woman, runs out into the street and flags down the car we're in with a medical team from a group called Project Home. They recognize Kara Cohn, who is a nurse. I shot her up, Kara. It's why I don't want to shoot people up anymore. It's just killing us. It's just, it, it's just it, it is what it is. Look, look around, for real, for real. This, this is death. This, this, Kensington really is death. It is wrenching, sad, and often astounding to spend a day in Kensington on Philadelphia's lower northeast side. The drug users we met asked us to use only their first names. The neighborhood may be site of the largest open-air drug market on the East Coast. People are passed out on sidewalks that are littered with needles, slumped in gutters and propped against brick buildings, blinking and staring blankly. Others on their way to work or school are close to all of it, says local council member Quetzi Lozada. They walk through syringes and human feces and in front of folks who are openly dealing drugs and consuming drugs and um, and who not only are consuming drugs, but who are also suffering from a lot of other health issues and um, open wounds. Our kids have to go through that every day. And healthcare workers see something new on the flesh and in the faces of those in the street they try to help with bandages, water, and food. Kara Cohen says... People started popping up with these wounds. They started nodding differently. They started passing out. Um, we didn't really know what was happening. What's been happening is xylazine, a tranquilizer for horses. For horses, that's been mixed into much of the fentanyl used on the streets, where it's called trank. Experts say they don't know why xylazine is being added to street drugs. Some users say it extends their effects. Dr. Joe DiRazio, an addiction medicine specialist at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, says trank, which is in over 90% of the fentanyl supply in some areas, often leaves open wounds on a user's arms and legs and makes them use more. What most people will report is I used it and I was asleep for a couple hours and then I woke up and I was in withdrawal from opioids and I needed to go use another bag. We rode along with Project Home. A couple named Bree and Jonathan had made a place for themselves under a muddy green hospital blanket stretched from the side of a corroded shopping cart. They lay on a small field of sodden trash. It's horrible. But at the same time, it's not too bad because you feel a little more free, but it's getting horrible. A little more free than if you were... If I was in a house. (laughs) But it's getting rough, especially with winter coming. It's getting cold, too. Yeah, it's getting really cold. Our things get stolen all the time. It's just, it's a mess out here. How are you feeling? Stressed out. Can I ask what the wounds are on your face? From Trank. We asked Bree what 
drove her to use fentanyl and Trank or any drug? To take away, I guess, my past. It helps numb a little bit. Like, my fiancé died last summer, and I lost my kids, and it's just, yeah, it's kind of to numb things now. It numbs things? Yeah. Um, but do you think it's helping now? No, it's starting to get out of control, I think. Kara Cohen cleaned the wounds on Bree's legs as Jonathan spoke. Both he and Bree looked drawn and exhausted, their eyes red and watery. Only the only drug that does is crack. Crack, yeah. I mean, isn't it against the law? Yeah, but the cops don't care down here. <laughs> they really don't. They don't give a about any of us, in all honesty. Sorry, my language is true. They well, care about the big guys, not us. What would you want the cops to do? Nothing. None of my business at this point. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter we're in the street, but and doing drug or not still drug, people. we're still human beings, and we're still human um, people, like everybody else. If those who live from fix to fix on the streets of Kensington feel neglected by local officials, so do many who live, work, and struggle to do business here. They don't care about the families the people who live in this part of the city. Dionisio Jimenez, who worked his way up through restaurant kitchens after immigrating from Mexico 15 years ago, now runs Cantina La Martina with his wife, Marie Angeli, in Kensington. Anybody who lives or stay in the street has more power, or the more entitled they do whatever they want to do, then you as a regular citizen live in this part of the city. Kensington does not have the highest rate of violent crime in Philadelphia, but it does have the highest rate of drug crime by far. Mariangeli Alicia Saez says they must pay up to 40% more for insurance and trash removal because drug use is so open in Kensington. As we spoke, there were people passed out a few steps from their restaurant near a drop box for used needles. What message are we sending to children? What message are we sending that, okay, you're an addict, it's okay to use drugs, so we're facilitating this for you? Many people are afraid to have the conversation of enforcement. Says council member Quetzi Lozada. Open air narcotic sales is illegal. And in that particular area, we have turned and looked the other way. So. There's a number of contributing factors. We told Chief Inspector Michael McCarrick of the Philadelphia Police we had seen just two officers on foot patrol in Kensington that day, and they seemed to look away as people did drugs on the street. Homicides have fallen in the city about 28%, in part, say police, because more patrols are pinpointed at violent crime. Because ultimately, if I lock somebody up and they spend four hours, five hours in jail, and then they're back out on the street, that's a repetitive cycle that, yes, you'll see the, uh, a temporary fix, but ultimately you want to get that individual off the street. I have to make sure the kids are getting to and from school safely. We have to make sure they can get to and from work safely. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to interpret what you're saying. What, what, what I think you are suggesting is you can't spend as much time as maybe you would like to arresting people for illegal drug trade because if people are slumping over and sleeping, that's not violent. Your officers have to be... We have to prioritize our resources. There's no enforcement. But Councilmember Quetzi Lozada believes this kind of prioritizing may also lead to the rise of other serious crimes. Car thefts have increased over 100 percent. 
retail theft 34 percent, according to police statistics. Everyone says the same thing. We can't arrest people uh, because they are sick, right? Um, we can't bring people in without them wanting to, without them accepting uh, services. We can't violate their constitutional rights. And I ask, well, how about the constitutional rights of the people that are living there, that are raising their children there? At what point do they become the priority? You can also meet people with stories of hope in Kensington, but they remind us how there is no easy fix for addiction. Monique Taylor is a peer support specialist at Project Home. She struggled to stop using drugs for years. And the biggest fear that we see out in Kensington are the people who are afraid of withdrawal, you know, and or just being uncomfortable. And you have to realize that it's going to be uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable coming in. It will be uncomfortable coming out. But we're here to support you. When I look at them, I see me, you know, and I just try to give them the strength to believe that you don't have to be here. And we met Ricky Schwetz, who works for a company called Planet Fry, collecting used cooking oil for neighborhood restaurants. Got swept up in like 95 with the whole drug sweep up thing, did five years in prison. I was telling her I applied for Penn State and I wound up in a state pen. It was obviously they messed up my application. Ricky quit drugs in prison, got out, now has a family, and comes to Kensington several times a week for his job. He says just to sit in his car to eat lunch, can be horrifying. I can see in the rearview mirror some guy just falls over and he dies right on the ground. Nobody pays attention to somebody who's dead, like on the ground, and people are just sort of stepping over him. And I'm continuing to eat my lunch. That kind of stuff is sad that I even got to that state where it doesn't bother me as much as it probably should. Drug addicts are left out here to die, and, and the, the police do absolutely nothing about it. They see what's going on, and nobody intervenes anymore. Uh, there are people who will say, well, the last, last place that people like this should be is prison because they don't get help there. Huh. Yeah, it, I mean, if it wasn't for me going to prison, I would be dead. You know, I already done drugs and got myself addicted to that stuff, so next thing was death. So, yeah, I think prison saved my life. I think that's, that's, the, that's the case. Monique Taylor has learned from the work she now offers others that Kensington may help us see how the grip of addiction can choke out life and doesn't easily let go. The many ways to get into Kensington is plentiful. People get dropped off, people take the train, the L, people take the bus, they can, you know, get a cab or Uber, but there's not many ways to get out. Our story was produced by Ryan Bank, Martin Patience, and edited by Dee Parvaz. to Weekend Edition from NPR News. With Florida restricting how black history can be taught in public schools, some churches are stepping in with their own lessons. Here's WMFE's Danielle Pryor. 
It's 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and Pastor Sharon Riley of Agape Perfecting Praise and Worship Center in Orlando would usually be preparing to lead Bible study. Today, she's getting her church ready for their first ever African American History Masterclass. So if you will take a moment and just bow your heads with me. Father, we just thank you for your grace. It is still so amazing. There are about 100 parishioners packed into the pews, including a group of middle school boys. Riley says these classes are in direct response to Florida's current political climate, where restrictions have been placed on teaching history. Because we have families who have students who are registered in our public school system, we know that there are certain pieces of information relevant to our history that are not going to be taught. AP African American history has been banned in the state, and teachers are no longer allowed to talk about anything that causes discomfort or guilt for a child. In July, Florida approved new African American history standards that teach kids, quote, slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Tonight's class is taught by LaVon Bracey. She's with Faith in Florida, the group that created the history toolkit for churches. 246 years of our ancestors being beaten, being raped, being degraded in America. This toolkit is not a curriculum, but a guide with recommended books, documentaries to watch, and articles to read. It covers the history of the transatlantic slave trade through the civil rights movement up to the killing of George Floyd. Bracey says black churches need to make sure children get the full picture. So we want the true history of, of America to be known. That can only be done if you tell the truth about what has happened and learn from that so that it will not be repeated again. The course culminates with a trip to Alabama in the spring. They'll visit some of the most important sites of the civil rights movement. Eric Sma is the chair of philosophy at Rollins College near Orlando. He thinks these efforts are a great idea. And so now it's up to us to make sure that we stay engaged, we stay knowledgeable, we stay committed to the fight for civil liberties because those who will want to right, constrain your civil liberties will stay committed on the opposite side. Back at Agape, Bracey wraps up her lesson by giving out tiny vials filled with soil she collected at various sites across Africa. I want the kids to take this soil with them. And I want every time that you have a very difficult thing to take this soil out and said, my ancestors made it. They walked on this soil, and I can make it too. For parishioner Angela Borders, tonight's lesson was an inspiration. And education is your power source to do greater things. Black churches have long played a large role in fighting for civil rights. Pastor Riley says she's now devoting one Wednesday every month to teaching black history. Well, the church is going to always be an educational institution, period. We teach people how to live their lives, how to raise their families, how to plan for their future. We teach. That's what we do. Faith in Florida says more than 300 churches across Florida and the South have signed up to teach their toolkit. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The man wanted for Wednesday's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, is dead. Authorities announced last night that the body of Robert Card was found in a neighboring town with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police say Card killed 18 people and wounded 13 others when he opened fire at a bowling alley and at a bar. The Medway family trapped in Gaza managed to send out an audio message this morning. Abud Okal says it is difficult to get information, and he says there is heavy shelling near them. The sky has been lit up with red and orange colors. Uh, then basically all telecoms um, and Internet was lost uh, completely. So uh, no news uh, since that moment, and uh, uh, we actually went to sleep uh, not knowing uh, we would wake up in the morning or not. Akal is there with his wife and their one-year-old son, and he says the family is living in fear. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting the Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th. Tickets at MGMFenwayMusicHall.com. When she was alive, Dawn Powell was a well-known writer, a contemporary of literary giants like Fitzgerald and Hemingway. She was a truth-teller. Women who pointed things out, women who observed things, women who told the truth. Those kind of women scare me. A literary force during her lifetime, but after she died, her books and her body disappeared. The story of Dawn Powell on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's 1901, Queen Victoria, newly dead, Norwich and the rest of England in mourning. But 12-year-old Edith Holler is still alive, despite frail health and a curse. The curse was inflicted when she was an infant. An old actress declares that Edith never leave her father's theater, at least she and the theater meet their ends. As Edith grows, her imagination frees her and traps her. She regularly performs in a window for curious passers-by. She also becomes the most astute student of horrifying history in her hometown. And she will seek to tell that story in the way she knows best. Edith Holler is the creation of Edward Carey, who calls himself a writer who draws. His own imaginative sketches punctuate the novel. He joins us now from Austin. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Is that an authentic Austin, Texas accent? This is this is a very clearly authentic Texas accent, and, and it's the best Texas accent I can do. Um, now I'm from England, as you as you can yeah. as you can tell, uh, and I teach here at UT. And and having an English accent is um, can sometimes be an advantage. 
with with the curse laid on her at birth, did does Edith grow up feeling responsible for the fate of her town? I think she does, and I think she can't go out. And uh, her father seems to be playing her. She's she's allowed to walk in the auditorium when the audience arrives, but she's not allowed to talk. And so she seems like a, a walking piece of folklore. She seems quite dangerous and interesting. Um, and she has very gray skin. She's never been outside. Um, and so she becomes a sort of symbol of Norwich and she discovers something terrible, but she can't talk to the people of Norwich. So she decides that she must put on a play that will actually tell the people this terrible history of murder that has been going on for centuries. I believe I said Norwich. Did I mispronounce it? <laughs> well, that's, I think that's, that's how Americans pronounce it. But we say Norwich, so it sort of rhymes with porridge. Why is the novel set in Norwich as opposed to, say, Ipswich? <laughs> Um, well, Norwich is is my home city, and I was obsessed by its history as a child as well. It has this extraordinary castle under which there is supposed to be a king who's there with an army to save the city if it should come into um, any danger. And it has this wonderful folklore. There's this ghost called the Grey Lady that's supposed to haunt a part of the city called Tombland. And so I wanted to steep itself in all that history. The city's fantastic. And I love it. And the first time I ever went to the theatre was in the Theatre Royal Norwich. And it ignited in me such a love of theatre that I yearned to somehow report that in this novel. There is what I'll carefully call a condiment <laughs> that figures prominently into the story uh, called Beetle Spread. Let me put it this way. Not exactly Nutella, is it? No. Um, so so Beetle Spread is a very important part of the novel. Norwich was primarily timber in medieval times and so was prey to beetles and death watch beetles and buildings would actually crumble. And in the in the novel, there's this extraordinary folkloric character called Mother Neg, which Mother is the Norfolk word for, for mother, who in desperation is, she's starving, bangs her head against against her fireplace, and it's like the mating call of a beetle. And all the beetles rush to her, and she cooks them in an enormous pot. Then she starts to sell this jam, and people start to eat it, and it becomes, over time, a very famous symbol of Norwich. And the stepmother in the novel, who's a principal character, is a direct descendant of the folklore character, Mother Meg. Um, and so there's a kind of slight terror connected to her because children have gone missing over centuries and perhaps there's a connection between ah. the condiment that everybody eats. Ah. Uh, as we mentioned, the book is illustrated by you. What makes you as a novelist decide we need or want an illustration here? <laughs> I always need to see the characters that I'm writing about. If I can't see them, I feel I, I don't know them. And so for this book, Edith is seen as a cutout from, from a card theatre, from a toy theatre, these uh, theatres that um, Victorian children had. And I thought as I went through, she plays with toy theatres all the time, um, that I could actually have a toy theatre inside the novel so that you could actually cut out the novel and put together and construct a Victorian toy theatre with all the characters from the novel inside, and then you could have, you know, backdrops. And I thought, yes, this is the way to do it. So you could, if you wanted to, cut up the novel 
and construct the theater. Or you could go to my website and just download it for free. Or you could you could buy multiple copies of the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Make a few theaters and read a few. <laughs> Edith, in a sense, discovers other lives below the theater. Does she see a chance for her play to, to give her life, a new life? Yeah, I think so. And I think this is her actually seizing it. Putting on this play is is a way of speaking, and I think it's it's very serious and earnest, her communication. She has to write herself out of the position that she's put into. She's trapped inside the theatre, yeah. um, but she discovers that there's more to the theatre than she thought there was. And, and during that, she discovers the true history of what's happened to children in Norwich, and she chooses to be incredibly brave uh, with it. She feels like this is the only way is to tell people the actual truth. And so she would write herself into her future. And which introduces the line that, that just hasn't left me, to be frightened by the only place you can be. <clears throat> there must be many people, Edith says, I suppose, like that. Do we all have a version of, of being frightened by the place we are, do you think? Yes, I think so. Um, I grew up in a in a really old house in the UK, um, which was a Tudor house, and it was the tiniest crumb of the divorce settlement between Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves. That makes it sound very grand. It wasn't very grand, but it was a very old house, uh, and it had a feeling of age, of past, and and of fear and of death about it while still feeling alive. And in fact, underneath it was supposed to have a, a Saxon hall was supposed to be the foundations of this Tudor building. So it would go back centuries. And I remember as a kid going up to the attic in the summer to sleep, you would go up the stairs and they would creak as good old buildings do. But then five minutes later, the steps would creep back into shape. Oh, having, having borne your weight, no matter how small. Right, they, exactly. Yeah. So every time you still felt something, you know, something was there. So I felt haunted and, and loved that place. But I think, you know, I think you're haunted. You, of course, you're haunted with wherever you are. We all carry our ghosts uh, with us one way or another. And I think when you sit on your own, I think there can be a feeling of letting your ghosts appear. Edith Holler is written and illustrated by Edward Carey. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, if I may, happy Halloween. Thank you. Happy Halloween to you. Texas Rangers beat the Arizona Diamondbacks last night. Game one of the World Series. What a time to talk. Baseball music. Play ball! Grand Salami Time, the song and namesake for the latest album from the Baseball Project, a super group of musicians who dedicate their music to the love of baseball. Steve Wynn, Linda Pittman, and Scott McCoy are part of the Baseball Project, and they join us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, Scott. Great to be here. So I'm supposed to be baseball conversant. I did not know the phrase Grand Salami Time. Does one of you want to... Step into the batter's <laughs> box and explain it to me. When I lived in Seattle for 25 years, I became a Mariners fan after my fandom of the Giants and the A's, which is still strong. 
But uh, Dave Niehaus was there, a longtime broadcaster. He's not with us anymore, but he would get really, really, really excited when anyone hit a Grand Slam, and he'd say, get out the rye bread and mustard, Grandma. It's Grand Salami time. He would shout it at the at the top of his <laughs> voice. And so I just always remembered it. And it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a catchphrase in in Seattle, too, you know. But that's where that came from. And so... The whole rest of the song is made up of a lot of phrases from other nutty broadcasters, <laughs> too. <laughs> like the sacks are drunk. I hadn't heard that y- one. Yeah, either. yeah. <laughs> like, I read that space is loaded, I imagine. Right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, uh, I get it now. I get uh, it now. The sacks are oh, Pretty good, okay. right? right. The sacks are drunk, and so am I, which was often the case. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Pittman, let me ask you about the song about the yips. Baseball players don't want to get them. A lot of great players have had the yips. This is just, well, how do we explain the yips? The yips is when something that you have found very automatic in the past, something that Mm -hmm. you've done, you know, repeatedly, and it is not a problem, and suddenly one day you just have a problem and you stumble over whatever it is you might be doing. One of my favorite players in the game, John Lester, the great pitcher. Yeah. Couldn't oh, yeah. throw the ball yeah. to first. Yeah, and yeah. Chuck Knobloch, famously. Yeah. Chuck Knobloch. One of the very <laughs> famous ones, um, ex-twin. Yeah. Yeah, well, as a drummer, you can imagine that that could happen. And I hate to say it, but it does, and it has happened to me. Yeah. Interestingly, that can happen to me on that song. Really? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a funny little beat, and I kind of knew it when I was coming up with it. I was like, well, this this is bound to happen at some point. And, uh, yeah, I have to really watch it. And if we get the yips in that song, we can say, yeah, we meant to do that. That was Uh-oh. part of the process. Yeah. All this uh, high-minded ribaldry uh, notwithstanding, is baseball brought you together as a group? Music, really. Yeah. I mean, music, but we knew each other because we love each other's music. But when we discovered that baseball was a, a common thread, we, we kind of said, hey, let's um, let's write some songs mm-hmm. about it. You know, it was a, a sort of a drunken idea that Steve and I had one night and uh, and everybody <laughs> kind of went along with it. <laughs> I mean, and it, 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 it really it's, it's funny because, you know, we we could be a band that sings about anything. We just chose this one subject that allows for so yeah. many metaphors for life itself, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, baseball, even more than if we were, say, the football or basketball or badminton project, you know, we, you know, it's a game where everything's one-on-one. You've got the man on the mound, the man at the plate, and it's like, you know, it's high noon, it's Gary Cooper out there, you know, against the bad guy. Yeah. And that really lends itself to, to all kinds of songs. I want to ask you about another song that is a painful memory for those of us from Chicago. Steve Dahl, Chicago DJ, came up with the stunt. He despised disco. This was 1979. Uh, the White Sox against the Tigers. He invited people to come to the game with a disco record that would be blown up on the field. There's a guy on the radio saying, disco sucks, doesn't matter to me, but I know what makes bucks. Let's bring out the fans. 
It was a terrible night. They had to call the second game. Bill Veck, who then owned the White Sox, one of the great people, I think, in sports, uh, was mortified. And I will never forget the scene of him. He had, he had one leg ambling around trying to beg people to go back to their seats. It was just terrible. Oh, man. Do you feel any sense of identity, though, with the people whose records were blown up that night? At the time, I think we, those of us who you know, were music fans or baseball fans, just thought, well, well, that was a wacky thing. That was crazy that they did this and the blew up the field. Ha, ha, ha. But over time, you kind of look back in the event, and not everybody feels this way, but in the song, I try to make the point that the dog whistle there of blowing up disco records and what that meant and how people looked at that, there was definitely a kind of a ugly undertone. You know, it was kind of a racial undertone to the whole thing. There was not a pleasant day you know, in, then or in hindsight. And the thing is, on top of all that, we like those records. And that's why we put the song to a disco beat. <laughs> oh, I'm just getting that now, of course. Thank you, Linda. But, you know, I mean, that, 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 that song is like what we kind of shows what we try to do with the band. We, you know, when we write these songs for the records, we, sometimes we want to have a whole lot of a story to tell in a four-minute song. You yeah. know, say what happened, why it mattered, what how we feel about it in three verses in the chorus, you know, and get, and, and get out by the fade out. And that's a lot to do. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge of this band that we might not have in some of our other bands where you can leave a lot of holes in the story and say, you figure out the rest. We actually are rock and roll baseball journalists. <laughs> you don't need another suggestion, but I'm going to throw one your way anyway. Okay? <laughs> All right, here we go. With the pitch clock in baseball? Yeah. 15-second song. What do you think? <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's a pretty good challenge. That's a pretty good challenge. Yeah. I, I, I like it. I like where we're going with this. Uh, Steve Wynn, Linda Pittman, and uh, Scott McCoy, all part of the baseball supergroup, The Baseball Project. Their latest production, Grand Salami Time, out now. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having us, Scott. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. A pleasure. Great talking to you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman writes our Major League theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Sunshine today and highs reaching the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com and Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade eight. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. 
I'm Peter Gross, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we talked about how a live baby animal cam is getting us through the actor strike. This is where we're at now. A baby otter is the closest we can get to Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> On the radio, you can imagine we're all baby otters. So join us and special guest legendary lyricist Bernie Taupin on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Diamond. This hour, the alleged mass shooter in Maine is found dead. Also in the wake of attacks by Hamas, a former head of Israel's security service on what he sees as his government's failures. Apologies are considered good manners, but do they also have legal weight? And Radical, a new film about a teacher in Mexico who turns over the desks in his classroom and tells students they're lifeboats. Eugenio Durbez plays the real-life teacher, Sergio Juarez. After talking to him and when I was preparing my character, I discovered not just a great teacher, but an amazing human being. Mexico's biggest star this hour, first our newscast, it's Saturday, October 28, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli ground troops have entered northern Gaza as part of an expanded military operation against Hamas militants. NPR's Greg Myrie reports from Tel Aviv. This marks the first time Israeli forces have remained in the territory overnight. Israel sent tanks and other armored vehicles into northern Gaza, where they were backed by some of the most intense airstrikes yet. This overnight presence marks an escalation from recent days when Israel was conducting only brief ground raids, going in and out of the territory. But this is not the full-scale ground invasion many are expecting. Israel still has a huge military force massed just outside Gaza's borders. Hamas says it ambushed some Israeli troops, but Israel says it suffered no casualties overnight. Few details are emerging from Gaza. Cell phones and the Internet have been cut off, causing an almost complete communications blackout. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The communication blackout has led aid organizations to raise the alarm about relief efforts inside Gaza. They say residents there are unable to make emergency calls to medical teams, and U.N. agencies and the Red Crescent say they're struggling to get through to their workers on the ground. As Israel escalates attacks on Gaza from the ground and the air in New York City, hundreds of anti-war demonstrators descended on Grand Central Station last night, disrupting the busy evening rush. NPR's Amy Held reports police arrested dozens of protesters. The group Jewish Voice for Peace organized the demonstration with hundreds of protesters clad in black t-shirts with the message not in our name gathering at the main terminal in Midtown Manhattan closing it for a time. They kept chanting even as some were handcuffed and let out by police. As Israel steps up attacks on Gaza and the humanitarian crisis there grows, 
In Tel Aviv, the families of hostages held by Hamas say their patience is up and they're taking to the streets to demand the release of their loved ones. More than 200 are believed to be held in Gaza. A fear is they are inside the tunnels. The Israeli military is targeting. Amy Held, NPR News. A manhunt in Maine is over. The man suspected of fatally shooting multiple people in a bowling alley and a bar Wednesday night in Lewiston has been found dead. Officials say 40-year-old Robert Card was found dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound, putting an end to an intense 48-hour search, as NPR's Dave Mistich reports. Governor Janet Mills said Card's body was discovered in Lisbon, just miles from the sites of the shootings in Lewiston. She and other officials expressed relief. While law enforcement officials say the community will now begin the healing process, they say the investigation into the shootings that left 18 dead and 13 others injured will continue. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts family trapped in Gaza says the bombings there have intensified and they're living in fear. The Palestinian-American family from Medway was able to communicate this morning, despite a near blackout of most information from the enclave. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Finding that he was able to use his U.S. cell phone this morning, Abud Okal sent an audio message saying that the airstrikes, missiles, and drones over Gaza last night were the worst he's experienced in the three weeks his family's been trapped there. He says he slept huddled with his wife, Wafa, and their one-year-old son, Yusuf. Fear controls us, um, and no matter how strong uh, one can be, uh, fear for our lives, but uh, most importantly, um, Yusuf's lives does get to us. Ocal said he's trying to remain hopeful that the U.S. will help negotiate a way for them to return to Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. State police say two people were shot on the Worcester State University campus overnight. The victims were taken to UMass Medical Center. There is no word of an arrest. Students are being asked to stay in their dorms until police finish processing the crime scene. Worcester State is canceling all homecoming and family weekend activities. With Halloween looming Tuesday, this is expected to be the busiest weekend of the year in Salem. Officials are urging visitors to take the train, ride the ferry, or use satellite parking. The MBTA has added extra trains. The Salem Ferry is running extra vessels to handle the additional demand. Shuttle service is running this weekend from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. between Salem's three free satellite parking lots and downtown. Last night in Boston, the Celtics beat the Heat 119-111. to Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Red Wings. Tonight, the Revs are on the road against the Philadelphia Union in Game 1 of the first round of the playoffs. It's 63 degrees in Boston with sunshine today, highs in the low 80s. Tomorrow, a chance of some rain, mainly late in the day. Sunday's temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The suspect wanted for the shooting that killed 18 people at a bowling alley in a bar in Lewiston, Maine, was found dead yesterday. Officials have also released more information about those who were killed. And Pierre's Joe Hernandez 
has been reporting from Lewiston and joins us. Joe, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Officials announced late Friday a man uh, named Robert Card had been found dead. What do we know? Right. Authorities made the announcement during a press conference late in the evening, and they said they found the body of 40-year-old Robert Card in Lisbon Falls near the Androscoggin River with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Besides that, they didn't release many other details, but we're expecting more information today. But last night, Maine Governor Janet Mills said she was breathing a sigh of relief knowing Card was no longer a threat to the community. I know there are some people, many people, who share that sentiment, but I also know that his death may not bring solace to many. Now is a time to heal. President Biden also released a statement after news of Card's death, thanking first responders and calling it a tragic two days for Lewiston and the nation. And what it means now for the community, basically, is that they can begin to move on. They've been holding their breath for a few days, waiting for this manhunt uh, to come to an end. The shelter-in-place orders that were in place had been lifted earlier in the evening, and a few local hunting bans that were in place due to the manhunt were lifted after news of Card's death. Joe, what have authorities released about the victims in the shooting? Well, they shared more details at an event uh, earlier in the day yesterday. 18 people were killed in the shooting, all of whom have now been identified and their families have all been notified. The victims ranged in age from 14 to 76 and included a father and son and a husband and wife. Uh, Police got photos from all the families and showed them at this press conference reading the name of each victim aloud and asking the reporters in attendance for a moment of silence. Lewiston Police Chief David St. Pierre was asked by a journalist what it's been like for investigators, and he said he knew some of the victims, and so did other officers. And it's certainly very challenging. Um, you know, try to go into a, a situation very objectively and, um, you know, do a very thorough job knowing that you know this person that it's affected or, you know, a family member or a friend. Very difficult. But Lewiston is Maine's second largest city, but still only has a population of about 40,000 residents. Joe, what, what lies ahead in this investigation and for the community of Lewiston? Well, we're still waiting for more information about how Card acquired his weapons. We know the Army Reservist had mental health issues and was even hospitalized last year for them. And there have been questions about the state's legal authority to take his guns away because of those mental health issues. Maine's law is not as strong as some other states' laws in that respect. Uh, But I think as far as today goes, it'll be seeing how the community reacts to news of the suspect's death and having those shelter-in-place orders lifted. People will be able to gather in person for the first time since the shooting to hold events like vigils that had been only taking place online due to the active manhunt, which is now over. NPR's Joe Hernandez in Lewiston, Maine. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Security has been at the core of Israel since it was founded in 1948 as a refuge in the world for people who've been targets of oppression and genocide for centuries. The Hamas attacks of October 7 shook that view. Ami Ayalon began his military service in 1963. He led Israel's navy and then Shin Bet, its domestic intelligence group, after the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. He joins us from Jerusalem. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for hosting me. The attacks of October 7th were savage. Did they also represent an intelligence failure? It's a political failure, it's an intelligence failure, and it is an operational military failure. 
I can give a lecture of about, I don't know, one week on all these subjects. But I think that in a nutshell, Israel after the 7th of October is a different Israel and in every aspect. How so, sir? First of all, the level of fear. You mentioned the fact that, you know, Israel was created on the basic assumption that we are looking for security. And you mentioned uh, the fact that this was one of the cornerstones of this building since 48. No, it was the cornerstone of the Zionist movement since the end of the 19th century. And if you ask an Israeli, he will tell you that we are fighting for 140 years and not only during the last 75 years. So I think that the main debate in, among Israelis is how to fight Hamas and what should we do in Gaza? Well, let me turn the questions on you and let's begin with Gaza. Do you have concerns about an Israeli ground operation in Gaza? All what I can say from my experience, when we speak about war, we know when and how it starts. Uh, we shall never know how and when it will end. This is not another round of violence. You know, the round that we used to see during the last 15 years, see Netanyahu came to power. This is a war. And Netanyahu promised us that he will destroy Hamas. Now, the way I understand Hamas, and I studied Hamas for many years, Hamas is not only his military capability and not even his political leadership. Hamas is an ideology. And the only way to destroy an ideology is to present another ideology. And in my case, I think that the only ideology that can compete and can even prevail when they will face the ideology of destroying Israel, this is the ideology of Hamas, is to present a political horizon, which means uh, finally we should say that the way to see Israel safe and maintaining our identity as a Jewish democracy is to create a reality of two states, Palestinian state and a Jewish state. Are you concerned that all the civilian casualties in Gaza, will that just create more sympathy for Hamas? Yes, of course. Hamas is perceived, and this is a major, major problem, Hamas is perceived as the only, only ideology that is fighting for Palestinian freedom and the end of occupation. Since diplomacy failed, and when I say failed, you know, Oslo agreement collapsed, and the responsibility is on, um, on the shoulders of all of us. Uh, we made many mistakes, Palestinians made many mistakes, and I can elaborate on it, but this is history. So unless we shall create a political horizon that Israelis and Palestinians will believe that although in the past we did not succeed, with the support of the international community led by America, it is possible. The reality today uh, enable America to take a leadership role and to lead Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries to put the Arab Peace Initiative on the table and to tell all the players, look, we can and we want to change the reality in the Middle East. It will take years, but finally the goal will be to create a reality of two states. This is a precondition in order to bring Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan and all the axis that will face Iran, terror, 
and instability in order to shape the new Middle East. Ami Ayalon, former head of Israel's domestic intelligence service Shin Bet, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. In December 1972, astronauts on the Apollo 17 mission went rock hunting on the moon. Before we cover them up, let's get them. I gotta get a sample of that mother rock. They brought about 250 pounds of moon rock back to Earth. Those samples are still being studied today. NPR's Regina Barber reports that scientists have now determined the moon is about 40 million years older than previously thought. The moon is roughly 4.5 billion years old. So what does an extra 40 million years mean on this timescale? Jennifer Greer is the lead author of the study published in Geochemical Perspective Letters. Here's how she sees it. That 40 million years is significant when you look at the very dynamic early history of these two objects. A lot of stuff happened in the early solar system uh, very quickly. In the early days of our solar system, an object the size of Mars smashed directly into a forming Earth. And then they smushed together and material sort of peeled off to form the moon. A hot moon that had a magma ocean. These Apollo 17 rock samples are crystals from that cooled ocean. To figure out how old these crystals are, scientists used radiometric dating. Because uranium decays into a specific kind of lead over time, scientists can use it to work backwards and get an age. The problem is, if some of that lead is lost over time or clumps together, it can throw off the age estimate. But new technology can help. For example, Greer was able to look at this sample on the atomic level to see if the lead was undisturbed. The type of measurements that we do in in this work would not have been possible 50 years ago. They wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. This new age isn't a surprise to Marissa Tremblay, a geochronologist who didn't work on the study but was impressed by the technique. And they're really difficult measurements to make, too, so it's, it's very exciting to see these new results. Even though this older date isn't a surprise, Tremblay and Greer both agree it clarifies an important piece of the puzzle for how we, our planet, our moon, came to be what they are today. When did that magma ocean start to crystallize? It's telling us about that very early history of the moon. It's also telling us about when that big impact happened on the Earth. Tremblay also says that after dating more lunar samples, she wouldn't be surprised if the age of the moon gets even older. Regina Barber, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about five minutes, a look at how daily life has changed in Israel since the Hamas attacks. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting the enigmatic, improvisatory White Rabbit, Red Rabbit, with different actors every performance through November 12th, theumbrellaarts.org. And Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new, healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. 
It is 66 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 80s. Lows overnight in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, a chance of some rain mainly late in the day and temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. With the manhunt in Maine over, authorities there are expected to hold a press conference shortly. Last night, the U.S. Army reservist accused of opening fire at a bowling alley and a bar was found dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. 18 people were killed and 13 others wounded. With Israel stepping up operations in Gaza, protesters in New York City packed into Grand Central Station during the Friday evening rush hour, calling for a ceasefire. Authorities say more than 200 people were arrested. And the Texas Rangers have the early lead in baseball's World Series. The Rangers took game one last night, beating the Arizona Diamondbacks 6-5 to in extra innings. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Apologies often work on movies and television shows, but what about in court? That depends. Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty Tuesday to illegally conspiring to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Part of her plea deal included a written apology. She stood before the court and said... If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. All four plea deals so far in the Georgia election case have included apologies to the people of Georgia. Professor Kay Levine is Associate Dean for Research at Emory University School of Law and has some insights. Thank you for being with us. Of course, happy to help. How unusual is it to require someone with a guilty plea to also write an apology? So it's much more common to see apologies from defendants as part of sentencing hearings when they've been charged with and convicted of crimes against individual people. This kind of apology letter to the citizens of the state of Georgia, I've never seen or heard Mm. from before. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It just is not something that we normally hear about. What what does somebody like Jenna Ellis or Sidney Powell stand to get out of making a formal apology in a case like this? Well, first of all, they, they are being required to make this formal apology as part of the plea agreement reached by the prosecution. So the first thing they stand to get is a check mark in terms of compliance yeah, with their incentive. obligations yeah. under the <laughs> under the plea deal. Um, the second thing is they are locking themselves in in some way to a statement about their own responsibility for the behavior that led to these charges against them. 
And um, that the statements that are part of these apology letters and the statement that, that Jenna Ellis made in court may well be used to lock them into testimony in any future trial against any of the other co-defendants. So if they provide testimony against other co-conspirators, it, it becomes, in theory, uh, harder for a defense attorney to suggest that they haven't accepted responsibility for their own participation. Yes, that's exactly right. Let me try and pose the question I think occurs to a lot of people. Does does making an apology conceivably make the person who offers the apology and has accepted a plea deal and, and might wind up paying, a, you know, a fine, does it make them a more credible witness against other people involved in the case? And obviously the biggest name involved is Donald Trump. Possibly. I think the apology shows that they have reckoned with their own behavior. You know, then again, I think many of us just in our common experience with other human beings might question the value of an apology that's been sought from another person as opposed to an apology that is coming purely from a place of self-motivation by the one giving the apology. And they and they do they do have the powerful incentive of, of reaching a plea deal agreement with the prosecutor, too. Absolutely. This is something that defense attorneys regularly seize upon as a basis on which to challenge the credibility of a witness is to say, you're only testifying now so that you can take advantage of this good deal. It's something for the, that the jurors will have to consider. I think the government at this point, Fonnie Willis's office, is hoping that that technique works for one witness, maybe two witnesses. But when you have multiple witnesses coming forward, speaking about what happened behind closed doors, sharing emails, text messages, physical documents that previously nobody had known about, that it makes it less likely that any one of those people is saying what they're saying only to get a good deal. Kay Levine is Associate Dean for Research at Emory University School of Law. Professor, sorry for taking your time, <laughs> and thanks very much. <laughs> thanks for having me. Our colleague and friend, Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep, arrived in Israel yesterday and encountered a slice of life in an Israel that is at war. We were just leaving the Tel Aviv airport when the taxi driver said it was a day of missile strikes. Hamas and its allies were firing them out of Gaza. The driver was gathering information, as Israelis often do, from phone apps and the car radio and said he himself had just passed near the place where a missile had landed. And when we go to your hotel now, I can show you still the, the, the smoke. The smoke from yeah. the missile? From the building, because from it, the hit, build, it hit it, a building. It hit a building. He wanted a closer look himself, so we detoured in that direction. He said his name was Elihu Marry Me. Marry Me is a good setup line for a joke. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful name. So, so, yeah, so where are you going? I'm going to somewhere. He said, Mr. Marry Me? Oh, no, I'm already. <laughs> In his cheerful way, he said it's a very, very bad situation. His daughter lost two friends on October 7th when gunmen led by Hamas attacked a concert outside of Gaza. I asked how she's doing now, and he said, you can ask her, and called her as he drove. Yeah, I'm here. I'm listening. Hi. How are you? Yes, hello. My name is Steve. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's hard time for everyone, and the hardest thing is that Everyone lost someone. Yeah. Everyone I know knows someone. Now, if you see Kylie, her name is Kylie. Hi, Kylie. Hi. 
the missile, the last missile was down right here. Maybe we can see the... the so we were driving toward the missile strike and Kylie was still on the phone and said she was lucky only to have lost two friends. What were their names, your two friends? Jonathan Eidman and Liam Sharm. Can you tell me something about them? We're just happy people. Just people that just care of, of being nice to everyone. Never did nothing like bad to anyone and like... Wrong. Always took care that everyone would be happy. Understood. Always. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm staying positive. I think that's the, the way of our culture, of, of our like... Fire department. Oh, I see. Your father's yeah. pointing ahead to some sirens up ahead, some flashing lights. We are just uh, exactly where the, the hit, the last hit. Where the last missile hit. Yeah, the last missile yeah. hit in Tel Aviv on Chaim Barlev. I'm just here. We're on a busy urban street surrounded by high-rise apartment buildings and offices. It's south of Tel Aviv. South of Tel Aviv, okay. Soon we said goodbye to Kylie. Thank you. Thank you. Nice Thank to meet you. So you. Good luck to you. Bye. Have a good visit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. And moved forward to where police and fire trucks blocked the street. We got out to walk. Down the street stood a four-story apartment building, its walls blackened. And look what happened to the building. Oh, the roof is completely burned out. The, the missile roof, came from yeah. above and smashed it. Neighbors told us only a few people were injured, and life went on in that neighborhood. People sitting at sidewalk cafes. It was almost a normal scene although Mary May felt unsettled. How do you think uh, the prime minister is doing? Very bad. He says he voted for Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party every single election. But after what happened on the 7th of October, I don't know what to think about anyone from the government, from the army, from the intelligence, I don't know what to say. How, how things like this can happen, I don't trust anyone anymore. Nothing, really. Later on yesterday, we heard explosions over the city, likely the sound of Israeli defenses intercepting additional missiles. We heard news of even more firepower moving in the other direction, what Israel called an intensifying bombardment of Gaza and ground troops expanding their activities. Gaza's internet was disrupted, making it hard to know how many more casualties Palestinians suffered. Israel has said it means to destroy Hamas in a bid to restore the security many Israelis have felt they lost. NPR Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv. And now it's time for sports. Texas takes the lead. The NBA season tips off and the confounding contenders in the NFL. Howard Brandt of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Game one, Texas Rangers beat the Arizona Diamondbacks six to five extra innings in Arlington. Adolis Garcia smashed the walk-off homer in the 11th. Look, game two tonight, both these teams have been slightly mocked or more as wild cards, not having great regular season records. I like the way they play the game. That was a great game. There's attention to the fine points. Two totally separate arguments, Scott Simon. Could not agree more. 
I'm not a fan of this. I have not liked the fact that in baseball, a six seed and a five seed yeah. play each other. What is the point of playing all these games if these two mediocre teams are going to go play each other? There's just really not that much of a point. Although Texas had a, a better year. They won 90 games. Mm-hmm. However, let it be said, as it is always said, when there's competition, you will get compelling moments. And last night was a terrific game. It was a great game. And I think it's important to separate the two. The format isn't great. It values, it's like, it reminds me of the NCAA tournament where you get buzzer beaters and you get sensation over historical greatness. But when two teams get on the field and go at it, we got a fantastic game last night and I think we're going to get a really great series. And so I'm in. I just don't love the, the format itself, but... Give me, give me postseason baseball every single time. Yeah. NBA regular season tipped off Tuesday. Fear the deer! <laughs> uh, you know I say that. Jonas uh, and, and Damian. And you should say it. A great one-two duo, but there's also a lot of excitement over a young French, French rookie for the San Antonio Spurs, isn't there? Yes, Victor Wembanyama, and believe me, if you want to see something you've never seen before, watch the San Antonio Spurs this year. Seven foot four, or seven foot five, however tall he is, with the agility of a guard and the the shooting ability of a of a of a of a forward. It's on. It's he's unbelievable. He's he he's making he's blocking shots. He's blocking three pointers from yeah. from fifteen feet away because he's got that much of a wingspan. It's really fascinating. And yes, Milwaukee's got Dame Lillard, and I'm really happy for Dame. He reminds me a lot of. Kevin Garnett, when he came to the Boston Celtics, has been a, a great player for a long time in a, in, a, in a town which was Portland back then, which really just wasn't always competing for championships. And here he is now on the, on the big stage, wanted to go to Miami, but he ends up in Milwaukee. He's playing with Giannis, and the, the country's really going to see how great he's been for all these years. Yeah. The NFL. It's uh, it's getting into crunch time, and it's getting confounding. Kansas City, Philly, Eagles... Uh, you know, clearly having good seasons. Uh, the Bills, back and forth. The Detroit Lions are in first place in the NFC North. Of course, they have the <laughs> tremendous advantage of playing the Bears twice. Uh, do you see any clear favorite at this point in November? I do see a clear favorite, uh, and it's the Chiefs. I, yeah. I, I think that what's fascinating about when you're watching uh, – a transcendent player like Patrick Mahomes. You're, you see that the difference between how good he is and, of course, his his wingman, uh, Travis Kelsey, uh, which has <laughs> turned the NFL into the uh, the Kelsey Swift uh, era's tour in of itself. Oh, but now leave the man's personal life out of it. <laughs> personal life there. Every time he touches the ball, there's a, there's a shot of her Taylor in, in the box. Yes, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I think that when you, here's a great stat on, on Patrick Mahomes. This man has never played a road playoff game. That's how good Kansas City is. Buffalo is supposed to, Buffalo's supposed to be a great team. They're up and down. But, you know, Philadelphia, the Chiefs and the Eagles played each other in the Super Bowl last year. I still think they're the two best teams. Who knows what the Lions are going to be? They got smoked a week ago, and it was was like maybe we needed that blowout. So once again, once we start to hit Thanksgiving, we'll start to see pretenders and contenders separate as always. I'm kind of holding the torch for the Detroit Lions, but we'll see... (laughs) <laughs> we'll see where it goes. The Meadowlark we'll Media's... Uh, did I just say time will tell? Yeah, I did. I guess we can do that for the sports segment, too. <laughs> uh, Meadowlark Media's Howard Bryant. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The Mexican government says 27 people were killed when Hurricane Otis slammed into Acapulco early Wednesday. The scope of the city's destruction is shocking. The real toll is slowly coming to light, and Pierre's Ada Peralta joins us from Acapulco. Ada, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What does the government of Mexico say uh, about the situation where you are? Look, the death toll here hasn't been updated for more than a day. They are still saying that 27 people have died, and President Andrés Manuel López Obrador seems to think that Acapulco is doing okay. Um, Yesterday he said, and I'm going to quote him, We were lucky. Nature and our creator protected us. Even with the fury of the hurricane, we don't have many dead. Ader, is that true based on what you've seen and heard? No. uh, I mean, this is total devastation, Scott. I mean, yesterday we were watching people siphon gas uh, from a gas station, but people here are desperate. And I noticed uh, Ronald Rucci sitting uh, with a big empty water jug, just staring out at the bay. He spends half his time in Acapulco and half his time uh, in Canada. And he would dock his boat at this bay. And he says that a lot of his friends stayed on the boats to look after them, and now they're gone. Let's listen. My friends are gone. Quite a few of them are gone now. And you have to be here to see it. You have to go through it. It was, um, I was holding on to those metal posts in my windows just because we live above. And uh, my dogs just were lying, and the sofa, and the furniture, and the fridge, and I don't know. I don't know. It was uh, quite the experience. And his two dogs, Scott, uh, were killed in the hurricane. Um, And as we were talking, I saw rescue crews pulling out a body uh, out of the water. And as they came on shore, uh, around six families rushed to the beach. Uh, They were all looking for their family members who were fishermen. Uh, The rescuers put the bodies, you know, onto the beach and the family members were crying. Uh, They were holding uh, handkerchiefs over their mouths because of the smell. And one man I spoke to said that he had been here every day since the hurricane, that he had seen around 20 bodies being brought out, that his nephew was still missing. Um, There were two state detectives there, and one of them told me that yesterday alone, they had found at least 50 bodies across the city. This is going to be a long process, he told me. Uh, It's going to be weeks uh, of recovering bodies. And Ada, are people getting the help they need to recover? Quite simply, they are not. Uh, The aid coming in here is very little. I'll give you one example. We went to one of the big hospitals here, and they wouldn't let us in, but we spoke to the patients and workers as they were leaving, and they describe total collapse, total chaos. They say that the roof of the eighth floor of the hospital where the critical cases are handled, that collapsed, that there's no running water or even medicine. Um, We spoke to family members uh, who haven't heard from their loved ones since the hurricane. Now they're walking through the hospital trying to find them. Um, One hospital administrator told me that the hospital was so damaged that it's a total loss. Uh, They're worried that the diesel uh, for the generators uh, will run out soon and that they won't be able to stay open. So the situation here is dire, and there seems to be very few answers coming from the government. And Pierzeta Peralta in Acapulco, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Worcester State is canceling all homecoming and family weekend activities following an overnight shooting on campus. State police say two people were shot and the victims were taken to UMass Medical Center. The Worcester District Attorney's Office says neither the victims nor the suspects are students. Investigators are asking people to contact them if they have photos or video in the area of the shooting around Wesleyan Hall and Sheehan Hall. The shelter-in-place order imposed earlier today has lifted. However, the public has been asked to avoid the Worcester State campus area where police are working. The man wanted for Wednesday's killing of 18 people in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting is dead. Authorities announced last night that the body of Robert Card was found in a neighboring town with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's 66 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting The Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. MBU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu. I'm Peter Gross, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we talked about how a live baby animal cam is getting us through the actor strike. This is where we're at now. A baby otter is the closest we can get to Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) On the radio, you can imagine we're all baby otters. So join us and special guest legendary lyricist Bernie Taupin on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Glutton opens in 1798 France when a man named Terrar, chained to a hospital bed because he's reputed to be a cannibal, and the nuns who care for him are afraid He does possess a famously prolific and insatiable appetite, consuming rats, snakes, corks, sod, dripping livers, and other offal and live animals, not all of them small. Gerard becomes famed, useful, used, poor, perpetually hungry, and alone in the world. The Glutton is by A.K. Blakemore, the poet and writer, author of the previous novel, The Manning Tree Witches. She joins us now from London. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, This is my first radio appearance in the U.S. (laughs) Oh, my word. Well, we are honored. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Thanks thanks for choosing us. Um, Terrar, who you, you call a medical marvel, a sight of rare and arresting hideousness, he was a real person, wasn't he? Uh, He was, yeah. So um, a French peasant born in a town near to Lyon 
in the south of France um, in the late 18th century. He would have been about 18 years old at the height of the French Revolution when the Bastille fell. Um, so he was living during a particularly sort of chaotic uh, historical epoch in Europe. And he was what was described as a polyphage, literally a person who eats everything. Um, why or, or how, we don't know. And obviously kind of medical understanding at the time mm -hmm. uh, was very different from what it is now. Well, what made you see a novel in Terrar? Um, it's interesting because he's kind of this French folk figure. He kind of taps into certain sort of fairy tale, kind of these Rabelaisian conventions of sort of the hungry giants, the sort of big roly-poly jolly eater. But when you actually read sort of accounts of his life drawn from contemporary or near contemporary sources, it actually sounds like his life was in many ways very nightmarish, kind of the idea of being hungry all the time and not able to do anything to fully sate one's appetite was kind of the most nightmarish way of living I could imagine. So I was kind of interested in, in the dissonance between the kind of monstrousness or comicness with which he's been portrayed historically. There's kind of one main contemporaneous account of his life, which was recorded by a doctor who had treated him. And it's a medical document, but also there are all these aspects of it that are obviously fabulized and made up. You know, this doctor describes how Taha's countenance was so frightening that animals would flee from him in the street and how he smelt so bad that kind of literal stink lines would rise off his body, things that couldn't possibly be true. So kind of already in even these ostensibly historical documents, there's these elements of fantasy and, uh, you know, mythos being injected into Tara's life. And in the novel, I kind of play with those, but I also wanted it to be a more gritty and sort of realistic interpretation of him as a character, kind of try to get my my way under the skin of who he might have actually been. It's hard to read the sections in which Tarar is presented for the entertainment of crowds, but this is how he became known, isn't it? Yeah, it's astonishing. And it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot because uh, the novel's already out here in the UK, so I've been kind of touring it around the UK over the past couple of weeks and, and a reaction sort of things people have said to me afterwards has been quite often, oh, God, I'm so glad we've moved on from, from that sort of gruesomeness as a form of entertainment. And I think, well, in some ways, yes, certainly not in the way it was in the 18th century. We're still sort of doing those sorts of things. But um, I don't know in the US if you have I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. It's a reality TV show over here um, in the UK. Well, I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've got to say, I don't know but we do not lack for <laughs> appalling reality shows. Of course, yeah, yeah. And um, it's quite a big deal over here, you know, millions of people tune in and, and quite an essential part of it, which, you know, ends up making the newspapers every year. You have former politicians or boy band members eating disgusting things, eating insects, eating unusual parts of animals. And it's this kind of this sort of festival of depravity, I suppose. Um, we, we're still very attracted to the sort of schadenfreunde or, or depravity of seeing people do things that are taboo or that are shocking. 
um, or kind of out of the natural order of things. Some sections are so graphic, they're hard <laughs> to read. Is that the right reaction? Is that what you're going for? Oh, there's no right or wrong reaction. Um, <laughs> in the UK, we might call it a Marmite book. Marmite, you either love it or you hate it. Marmite is that, uh, I don't want to call it a condiment. It's, it's like, like a condiment. <laughs> it's yeast extract. It's sort of dark brown and quite tarry. And some people really like it and some people don't. And, and here I am explaining Marmite on NPR. Um, it's not going to be to everyone's tastes. And I kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, my thinking was if I was going to write a novel about Tahal, which is something I've wanted to do for a very long time, it was that I kind of needed to swing for the walls. <laughs> yeah. You kind of, there wouldn't be much point in writing a novel about a man who historically ate offal as a form of entertainment and having all of that kind of happening off screen, as it were. So, yeah, at the end of the day, you can only kind of write for yourself. And um, I've got quite a strong stomach, I guess. A.K. <laughs> Blakemore's new novel, The Glutton. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was lovely. When sixth graders at the Jose Urbina Lopez Elementary School in Matamoros, Mexico, come into their classroom one day, they find all their desks have been turned upside down. Apúrense! Órale, apúrense, apúrense! No tenemos mucho tiempo. Pero, ¿qué les pasó a las bancas? No son bancas. Their new teacher. Sergio Juarez says their desks are actually lifeboats. Climb in. I'll help you. Then he flops onto the floor. It's the beginning of an unconventional lesson that leads the class through fractions, physics, and philosophy. This real-life story is the basis for the new Mexican film Radical. Starring Eugenio Durbez, it is directed by Christopher Zala, and was the festival favorite award at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, Eugenio Durbez and Christopher Zala join us now from Mexico. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Scott. It's a, it's a real honor. When Sergio arrives at the school, the, the teachers are teaching students to prepare for a test, and they're, uh, in addition to being fine teachers, I'm sure, they, they get a bonus if they're able to move up test scores. How does Sergio regard that kind of teaching, Mr. Durbez? After talking to him and when I was preparing my character, I discovered not just a great teacher, but an amazing human being. He was telling me the story why he started this radical method. And it was because every single year, at the end of the year, kids used to take a picture with him and hug him. And year after year, it was less and less kids who approached him. And then he realized he, he was probably losing the touch and he had to do something radical to change it. So he ended up in this school that it's, it's called like the, the, the basural, basural yeah. like the trash punishment uh, school. Escuela de Castigo. Yeah. So he's been teaching since then and he's still there. He thought he should stay there because in that school is where they, they needed him the most. Mr. Zala, what spoke to you about this story? Because, I mean, it, it occurs to me that sometimes on a film set, a director is a kind of teacher, too, aren't they? I had become a father between my first film and, and this one. After that first film, which is actually where Eugenio and I first met, and everything after that went completely wrong for me. 
I kind of lost my way and decided I needed to pull out of the film world and, and reset. And there was something about this teacher, Sergio Juarez, who actually had a nervous breakdown and decided to, to start over that I really, um, I really appreciated. But it, w- it was specifically the, his regard for the kids and this switch of mindset, essentially, which was instead of to consider myself a teacher as authority, I'll stand next to you and look out at the universe with wonder and be your co-learner. And it's that sort of sacrifice of authority, but also that recognition of seeing this child as a a full being that was both wonderful, I think empowering. I think it's the source of of his success when he was next to us on set and he came to set for quite a bit. And it was one that we employed on the set. And I was constantly struck with how the production itself was on some level, the proof of the story that we were telling that the genius is everywhere. And if you see the performances of these kids, you'll see what I mean. Well, both of you, please tell us what it was like to work with those youngsters. Yeah, I'll pass it over to Henry in a second. But the first one was actually to talk to them like they were your equal, not like children. Uh, and, and you forget watching this movie. These are 11 and 12-year-old kids. I mean, they really are so sophisticated and mature. The other thing, though, was that they had the biggest star in the history of Latin America in the room with them. Yes. <laughs> which kind of, you know, uh, well, I'll let Eugenio talk about it. But it was certainly helpful. <laughs> Yeah, that, that Mr. Gabez, I mean, they must have gone, I can't imagine what it was like for them to be, oh, gosh. Chris did a, a lot of genius uh, movements uh, there. Uh, first of all, he hired, he wanted non-professional actors. And that was very refreshing because they were never aware of the camera. I've been working with a lot of kids in, in, in movies, and I've learned a lot of kind of tricks to make them get to where you want because you know kids they they are not um, maturely ready to go into action into the emotions you know but i i think uh, we, we did a great team between chris and i with the kids yeah it was it was really about creating a family and and doing everything we could on set yeah. to to cultivate that i i do have to ask mr Durbez, i wonder if it adds a sense of responsibility to you in your career, knowing that people follow you and what they think of you, you know, that you want to do projects that are worthwhile. Absolutely. Uh, I grew up doing comedy. I was always like a, a, a television comedian. And I always wanted to start doing uh, movies and, and things that had like something deeper and when we talked about Radical, I was so scared. It's probably three days before we start shooting. I, I was having cold feet and I was having second thoughts. It was really, really scary to me. But um, Chris was very helpful. He knew what he was doing. I didn't. <laughs> so uh, I had an amazing director behind me. And that helped a lot. Well, Mr. Zella, how do you handle a situation like this? Because... Some people would say a director would be entitled to shake the star by the shoulders and saying, you signed a contract, (laughs) get in there. Not when they're your boss and they hired you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's true. He's produced the film too. The needle to thread, and I I think it's, you know, it's the relationship between a director and an actor in, in any case, is that you really have to get down into the depths and find the connection between the character and the actor. And in this case, I could see in Eugenio's previous work, I called it his costume. He was always doing something. He's convinced that everyone knows him. And I said, in fact, I disagree. 
I don't think we've really seen you. I think you're always hiding. I just went right at it with him and said, you know what, Sergio, this guy we're telling a story about, he came back and did something on a whim, flying by the seat of his pants. He had no training to do this, no really reason to be able to do it. Um, he must have been terrified. And I think if we do this differently and we just let you be you, I think we're going to see something that, that, in fact, we haven't seen before. Yeah, I mean, I'm also the, the producer. So I was talking to my business partner about this and my business partner said, well, you can, if you want, you the producer, just say no. And I was like, no, 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 I can't say, I, I can't do that because I'm, I'm talking as an actor and as an actor, I have to obey my director of what he, whatever he says. You are playing Sergio, the teacher, and he's still teaching uh, sixth grade there in Matamoros, right? Yes, he is. In fact, we just had a, a live Zoom with 75,000 teachers in the Jalisco state just the other day, and, and he couldn't attend because he was teaching. Oh, my God. Now, I mean, uh, he doesn't need my advice, but like, shouldn't he be working for one of these multi-billion dollar educational corporations? I mean, we're here talking to you right now because this man had this idea to move back to the trash dump, essentially, that he was from and, and to try to change the world. And, and we're here now talking to each other because of that. It's an extension. That, that dream keeps growing. And, and I sat down with him a week ago with a bunch of educational people here in, in Mexico. And, well, what is your, let's say you can keep this going. What do you want next? And I thought precisely he was going to say, oh, let's replicate the model. We can create after-school learning labs. Like I had, I had all these ideas, but I wanted to ask him. And his answer just knocked the wind out of me. And he said, my dream, if, like for this to keep going, is that we just value teachers more. Yeah, and, and, and you know something? Again, I asked him why he didn't move to another place, and he said that a, a lot of private schools was offering him better conditions, better salary, but he felt that he was betraying his kids, and he said, in this school is where they need me most, so I'm going to stay here because uh, that's what I want to do. I, 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 I told him you should be a priest instead of a teacher. Actually, he's a living saint. That, yeah. that I'll agree with. <laughs> Eugenio Derbez stars in the new film Radical, directed by Christopher Zala, in theaters now. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you Thanks very, very much, Scott. Thank you. Weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It's 66 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the low 80s. 
Lows in the upper 40s tonight. A chance of some rain tomorrow, mainly late in the day. Sunday's temperatures in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996, goodnewsgarage.org. I'm Scott Tong. Pummeling you with pumpkin recipes, our resident chef Kathy Gunst is carving and cooking up her favorites, including mac and cheese and roasted pumpkin. It is ooey, gooey, sweet, savory, so delicious, and also just a beautiful meal to have this time of year. That's here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.